Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. In February of next year, two big things drop. My book, Fortune, drops on February 8th. In it, I trace 10 generations of my family, demonstrating how laws and policies impact the course of my family's future and fortunes. And then... The book calls for repair of all that race broke in the world. The second thing that drops will be a new podcast called The Four. Now, The Four will gather four national and international Black faith leaders to dive deep on issues that concern the Black community. It will feature Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, and Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis and me. Over the next three months, I will introduce each of these amazing leaders to you, in case you haven't met them, so that you can track with us over at The Four. This month, we welcome Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. She's a speaker, preacher, pastor of Middle Collegiate Church, the oldest church congregation in the United States, by the way. Jackie's newest book, Fierce Love, A Bold Path to a Better Life and a Better World, just dropped, and we need to talk about it. Fierce love is exactly what we need in our world right now. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. Okay, so let's dive in. Jackie, we have very similar stories concerning our faith histories. You know, both of us have intersection with the evangelical world. And I wondered if you could share your faith story with us. I will, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I want to just let you know at the top of the conversation that since we almost published the book, we changed the title to make it just a little fiercer. Ah, <laughs> you love is, it. It is Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. Oh my I, God. Wow, awesome. It's a, it's a mouthful. And the reason I want to put that there is because I think actually that title signals my journey from good girl in evangelical church that I didn't even know that's what it was to good enough woman <laughs> in progressive world of many spaces. I like to say that I didn't choose Christian. My mom and dad were both Christians raised in Mississippi, and they gave me the God of their ancestors. They gave me the faith of their ancestors. My mom's mom, Madir, my own Madir, Tyler Perry, and my dad's mom, Mama Gert, were raised by strong, faithful women and men. And they were raised by strong, faithful women and men who had made the journey, as your ancestors did as well, across the middle passage and into the south of the United States, perhaps believing in love, perhaps believing in the power of a village. And the Christianity that they were given by their country preachers was 
Beatitudes. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, Ten Commandments. Um, you know, thou shalt not have any other God before you. And I like to think that there was some syncretization between what they brought with them on the boats, on the ships, to what they encountered here in America. And they had an imagination about freedom and service and liberation and raising kids. So I got like a box of God, you know, like, here it is. Love, love your kids, love your siblings, love your parents, honor your parents, big kids, take care of little siblings, pray for your enemies. Uh, and, and a bunch of don't know most too, Lisa. Don't curse, don't, you know, have sex, yeah, yeah. don't drink, you know, you know what I mean? You were there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of that stuff swirled <laughs> together in my little body. And when I was about seven and a half, I took the Eucharist communion for the first time. And I fell in love with God, not just given God. But when my mother said over the bread, this bread means God will always love you. And Lisa, it was that sweet Hawaiian bread that they never Oh, put Lord. In. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Girl. That's good stuff. Burst, I'm serious. Burst of honey goodness in my mouth. And then the cup comes by and she says, this cup means God will never leave you. So God will always love you. God will never leave you. That was then a kind of organizing principle for my faith. But as you grow to a teenager and your parents are trying to control you and church is trying to control you, I did feel like religion was more about what I don't do as opposed to who I be. And the sense that if you just don't do the things, you'll get parachuted out of the earth and into heaven. And that's the aim. Now, your ancestors, your mama was a civil rights woman. My great uncle George was a civil rights man. So that thread was all the way through there too. Do justice, do justice, do justice. But honestly, more personal piety than anything else. Okay. And I just ended up at some point feeling squished. My brothers could have sex. I mean, I didn't want to have sex, but the rules were like the boys could be a certain kind of way and the girls had to be a certain kind of way. Pentecostal relatives about don't wear lipstick and don't wear pants. And Lisa, really? I was like, does God really care? <laughs> it was so good. If I wear pants, really? Oh is is that going to be offensive to God? Wow, that is really deep. Right? Do you know my grandmother? She never wore a pair of pants her entire life. And I think it's because there was a Southern piety. There's this yeah, Southern. Absolutely. It's also maybe Southern belleness. Like she just wanted to be seen as a woman, right? Not as a worker. And she was made forced to work in the fields for her keep when she was down in South Carolina. So yeah, her whole life when she came north, she never wore a pair of pants. In my mom's story, it was like, you're not supposed to. You're just not supposed to. They had jeans to wear when they were in the field. And they had wear jeans they could wear when they were playing basketball. She and her sister shot hoops all the time. But there was a kind of churchy feeling. Anyway, collapsing that to get to just, by the time I'm, 25, I'm wrestling with God. Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you here? Are you here? And when I'm 30, I go to seminary answering this call I've had for, you know, two decades. And I find, I begin to find love as a God, just a little bit of feed the people, love the people. The rules that matter the most is love God, love neighbor, love self. And that is where I land at my age to a God named love, Lisa, to really wow. A God whose name is love, like God is love. Mm-hmm. First John, yeah. those who abide in love abide in God abides in them. That love is my religion. Love is my God. Love is my calling. 
this has been my journey. And it feels freeing and demanding at the same time. Can, can I ask, how did that square with your evangelical background? Like, did you have a fight inside of you to oh, get yeah. there? Absolutely. And what Absolutely. that look like? Well, I think it looked a little bit like breaking up with God gently. You know how Joseph could have divorced Mary gently? (laughs) (laughs) I sort of had a gentle, just distancing from God for a while where there wasn't really a great church to go to when I lived in California. Therefore, I didn't really work that hard at it. I had a solo journey with my Bible and my prayer life. And And so that, I think, was lonely, if I'm honest, Lisa, to not really feel like I had a people on this journey. But getting to Trenton after seminary and finding a people, my other mother, Patty, my friend, Michael, people who were like me, interfaith in their understanding of God, interreligious in their partnerships. Girl, we partnered with the Muslims, the Black Muslims, and the five percenters. You know who they are? Like no. The, like the Who's we that? don't like white people, five percenter people are like Clarence 13, the black man is God type people. Oh, so, uh, black Israelites on the corner in, exactly. in New York City. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like that. Okay. But anybody who would join us in a justice project, anybody who would help us fight police violence, we ended up picking up partners that widened my lens about who's called, who's loved, who God can use. Wow. And that was then not a war anymore inside myself. It was a kind of, oh, hallelujah. I see what time it is. God speaks many languages and my Christianity is just one. Wow. Wow. Lord, you just gave me chills. Do you remember the moment when you first said, okay, that's it? Mm, That's a good question. That's that's it. And then also how'd that feel when when you landed on that? Because honestly, there's a part of me that's still, I'm not quite there. Like, yeah, no, I, and, and one of the things that I got to when I got not, there, when yeah. I got there is also, you can't be turning around looking at people's conversation with God and judging that. That, that yeah. also is what I got to. It's not like, yeah. this is the only way God speaks. No, if right, God is speaking right. to the five percenters in some kind of way, then God is speaking to your evangelical brothers and sisters too, right? So stop all the judging. I think it was on, I think it was in a march in Trenton on living wage. There are pictures of me with my baby locks in my African clothes, marching with some colleagues that were black and white and Catholic and, you know, Jewish and Buddhist. And I just remember looking around going, oh, if there's a heaven, and I think there is, we're all marching toward it together. Okay. So I, let me say, I resonate with that a lot. And, and so I just said, I'm not all the way there. But when I said that, I was thinking of it. I was, well, I think there's still transition that's happening inside me, right? Mm-hmm. I was thinking of it, of salvation in the same terms as white Jesus mm-hmm. gets, right? So white Jesus, this is, I talk about Jesus as white Jesus and brown Jesus, right? So, and politically black Jesus. So mm-hmm. those are my, my three Jesuses that I have conversation I love them. with. Do they all talk to each other? Are they all Oh, connected? well, they, talk, they all talk to me. I don't know if they talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in the room for that one. So, but one, one thing that I've really come to understand is brown Jesus and politically black Jesus, they are talking in a context, the entire Bible being the context of colonization yes. and subjugation and enslavement. So there and the heart of God's concern on the first page of the Bible, when we see when God looks around and says, 
this is very good, right? The Mm -hmm. goodness is actually between things. It's actually talking about the ethics of all things. Are, are, and this is where I really relate to you, why I'm so excited to talk with you. The ethics of all things are actually about love. That right. love is at the center of how God created the world to be held together. We That's are right. held together by love. And That's it right. is radical love, actually. It's, it's tov me'od, me'od, the meaning, forceful, abundant, radical. So I love that, that you entitled your book is Fierce Love. And I have to say that that understanding of brown and black Jesus has actually challenged my white Jesus's understanding of salvation, that people have to say the name of Jesus and they have to believe in white Jesus, basically, in his salvation for their own personal souls in order for them to be saved. I actually I have to say I am I'm in a place now where the scripture itself is telling me that's not what it was all about. That's right, Lisa. And and because God predates Christianity. <laughs> Hello. God predates our revelation in Jesus Christ. God predates the texts that talk about God creating the world. You know, your beautiful book. God predates all of that. And God creates human before we can understand God. What makes us think that God doesn't expect us to evolve, to stretch. What makes us think as Christians that God's salvific power and love is only for us who know that vocabulary? Like Ooh. I have to tell you, the day wow. that happened to me, I was like, what? Because God's mm. multilingual. Oh my God. Because, because she wants everyone to get saved. I love that. Everyone. And multigendered. Right? Yeah. Like she, yeah. she ain't yeah. got time to be like in a certain kind of cold structure, that's not going to be substantive enough for all of humanity. Heck yeah, I'm getting and so I think, here. right, Lisa, but so will we, yeah. we know that. We just, there's just a part of us that wants to do it right because we're good girls. Don't want to let go of something that prematurely. But in my lifetime, I have seen the evidence of the way God flows through our Sikh siblings, through our Buddhist siblings, through our Muslim siblings, through our humanist and UU siblings. And I'm sorry, some atheists know how to do love. Oh, absolutely. Right. And I'm not, I'm not mad. evangelical. Hello, somebody. Right. Yeah. So I think that my God has just become more, both more expansive and also more simple. Mm-hmm. If that makes no, sense. I- Oh, it does. And I told you the moment that I began to realize that it's love is the thing. What was the moment that you realized love was the thing? I mean, because, you know, when you're when you're marching and you're organizing people, it's not necessarily about love. It could also be about power. And it has been about power for many people. Right. So. So what was it that made you go? Oh, I I think I think it was a process. So I'm I'm thinking I'm telling that one place of being in Trenton and looking across at the field of marchers and being like, wow, I I could put that scene again in the middle of Manhattan for a climate change march where literally some of us built an ark and look around and look at those Muslim kids on this ark. Look at that old Christian lady on the ark. But also it's the very first time I was in D.C. for the Black Lives Matter moment. Lots of other moments, but that very first time that a bunch of us went down to lay down in the Capitol cafeteria 
and protest Black Lives for, for the power of Black Lives. And we were organizing at that Methodist church that, you know, we always go to in D.C. Oh, yeah. We were like there. Like a block from the actual Right, the block from yeah. the capital. We were walking over there together. But it wasn't until we got inside, Lisa, and laid on the ground together and like limb upon limb and leg tucking, touching hand. Wow. And there's this oh, Palestinian Muslim girl, not Linda, but a younger girl. And there's this, the UU friend. And there's this Catholic, you know, nun. And there's this, and I was just, I was like, and then my, my straight black men who were terrified to be on the ground because they've gotten their butts kicked on the ground by police. All of us were one body. And I knew that it wasn't our grief that had us on the ground only. It wasn't our outrage that had us on the ground only. It was our love that had us on the ground. And the love was stronger than even the grief and even the outrage. That's exactly that's right. I, yeah. That's what I mean. Yes. Yes. I, I have often said love is more powerful than power. It is. That's beautifully said. It is. It, it is. is. Love drives us to lay down our lives That's for right. our friends. The reason why I, I think that is so important is because I, and I think it's actually especially important now when we have a whole generation of young people who are mounting the kind of the next wave of the civil rights movement. You know, everything from, from Black Lives Matter to the, the random people who come out on the street just to push. And I think that the temptation is to look at those large crowds and the, the chance and the anger yeah. and to think that the power is in that. Right. The power is in the, the power is in the power. The power is in the numbers. This is, this is you know, classic Saul Alinsky, right. right? So Saul Alinsky, build power by building numbers. And so we can get drunk on that and we can think that's actually the thing. Yeah. But the thing that strikes me about your testimony, Jackie, is that you actually learned about love in the context of the mass marches, in the context of protests. You, you understood yeah. the protest, but also the coming together. Yeah. You understood that it is love that is bringing us together. Not only the outrage, which is there, but the outrage is only there because of the love. I think that's right, friend. And to be honest with you, when I get to fierce love, when I get to fierce, which has got the same roots as fire, which makes me think about Holy Spirit and makes me think about that kind of power. I, I really do think that I learned it. My fierce love feelings were forged in the fire of outrage, really, right? Forged in the fire of grief, forged in the fire of disappointment, of wounding, of looking around the world and going, what in the hell really is really happening? And thinking, what will heal it? And my own personal story with my family, my mom and dad kind of stay together, like no matter what, and wrestle out the stuff and our dynamics with, with each other as siblings in a, in a context of really smart, feisty people, there's fire. There's sometimes fire works. But in it all, I have to tell you, is this abiding, crazy, Stick to it, persistent love. So at the personal level and at the political level, Lisa, one time I was down uh, in D.C. protesting about the Kavanaugh hearing. And I don't know if you know actor Angenou Ellis, but people who are listening, this girl's been having a 30-year career and she's about to blow up in this movie about, about 
about the Williams sisters and their dad. She's playing the mom. She's so wonderful. And then we're in the sea of women, white women, you know, Latinx, Asian women, all the black women, all the women. I look across the grass and there is Anjanu. And her face is shining with love. And she's furious. She's left a working job to come march about this. But also her face is shining with love. Do you know what I mean? The love is, I do know what you mean. The love is in the middle of it. The reason why she's so angry is because she sees that love has been violent. That's correct. That's exactly right. The ethic of love has been violent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It has been yep. uh, ripped apart right. by fear, by exploitation, yep. by brutality, right. by domination, right. by the, imp- the impetus to dominate. Right. And that, that shit gets us off. Well, it does. It does. We, look, we look at what's happening with the Ahmad Arbery oh my God. Um, trial right now. Holy God. Okay, somebody, right? Like we look at what's happening with that and we can see, we see, we get angry at what that judge is doing and what they did by, with, with the jury selection, because that is, all of it is what? It is a, a twisting of love. That's right. It is a destruction of love. Right. And if we didn't love, we wouldn't be angry, right? Alice Walker writes a beautiful bunch of essays. Anything we love can be saved. And I would say, and when it's not saved, it pisses us off and we got to find our way back to peace. But if we weren't outraged, we didn't care. You know, we just didn't care. So I'm good with, I'm good with some anger. I'm good with some rage. I'm good with some demonstrating in the streets and shouting Black Lives Matter. And I think love at the core of it actually is an organizing principle that's different than who's got the power. Because love's got the power. That's right. And it. Didn't MLK say love or justice is just love in public? That's right. That's right. That's right. And then yeah, Cornell West cribs on that. But absolutely, <laughs> King's kind of sentiment is justice is correcting everything that doesn't stand for love. Right. And that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Many listeners of Freedom Road Podcast have tracked with me over the course of years. You have been growing with me in conversations with people, but I think that there is nothing more powerful than the power of story, family story, to heal the world. So that's why I wrote Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Our nation right now is really at the brink In many ways, we're torn. We are more divided than we've been in more than a century. Now is the time for us to listen to each other's stories. Now is the time for us to lay down our arms and simply try to understand how we got here. And as a result, maybe even gain a new vision for where we can go together as a nation, as one America. 30 years of research, 10 generations, one family, the roots of race, the degradation, the resistance, and the rebellion, the rising, the calls to truth-telling, repair, and forgiveness. Fortune drops on February 8, 2022, so pre-order now 
When you pre-order, you help bump Fortune up so that the people who need to see it do. Pre-order Fortune, and let's continue to walk this road together. So Jackie, your book is written in the form of a memoir, and that means that you're telling some pretty personal stories. I've heard you talk about one of your stories that you look at it now and go, did I actually write that down? Like, <laughs> did I actually tell I can't my business? wait to read that story. I'm like, literally just that alone is like, I want to get this book. So right. now, but what was the hardest story for you to write? It might've been that one or it might've been another one. So let me just say quickly that my publisher didn't buy a memoir. Right. Like she really didn't. They bought a book in the wellness department. Harmony's the wellness department of of Penguin Random House. And they loved the structure of the book, the nine sections, nine chapters of, of steps to love self, love policy, love world. But one of my readers, Paul Tuff, a good friend of mine, said, your story illustrates these, you know, these points. So that's why I ended up putting my story in really to say, if I can learn this, you can too. Or here's my proof that this actually works because here it is. And I think the hardest story to tell is this just the ongoing narrative of my dad as a character because I really love my dad. Uh, I was home. You and I saw each other when I was in Chicago and got to be there for my dad's 87th birthday. My God. Wow. 87-year-old Black man. Oh, my God. And I went into this room in our house to do this podcast and it came out into the kitchen where my dad has set a table for me, like in that Eucharistic way, like Jackie loves fried chicken thighs. Yes, I do. And I love coleslaw and potato salad. And he laid that out for me, had that ready for me, table set, glass of rosé poured. And he just sat with me as he would have when I was 10. Or as he did when I was five, telling he and mom about the girl calling me the N-word for the first time. It was so both regressed to my dad's holding me as a child, but also full of our present tense, fierce love for each other. Where we bumped our way into each other, where his temper and his old black man from Mississippi self sometimes was hard. What, what he felt was disrespect if you had words coming back, the kind of stuff that we grew up with, some of us, in an evangelical traditional home. But Lisa, my dad has been transformed in relationship to his family, to my mom's cancer diagnosis and death. He loved her fiercely. To all of us who went outside of our race to love some people, he loves our partners so fiercely. To going from don't sass me to... Let me listen to your point of view. So he is an ongoing character in the story that I think proof texts the power of love to change us. But I know that people who are going to read the book are going to be like, first of all, Black people, like, why'd you tell your father's business? Ha ha. And then secondly, trying to like judge that. And I'm saying he's heroic because he is changed. And I'm changed because he's changed. I'm more myself, happier, 
than ever because my dad and I worked it out and how important it was for me to work it out. Wow. Like we could, you could walk away or you can work it out. And we worked it out. Yeah. And you say that this, this, this particular thread of the story weaves its way through your whole book. Yes, That's it interesting. Does. So what did this relationship teach you about love? Oh, that's great. I'm five years old and the girl calls me the N-word and my dad teaches me, you go to the Air Force Base Commander and you demand reparations, right? We demanded an apology. Wow. And wow. He was, some stories that are not in the book, like just, I got a math problem right one time and my teacher was like, that's wrong. And my dad went up to the school and went, no, actually it's right. Always doing justice. Always Wait, I just want to say, People, some people would not see that as love. They would see, really, if you're looking at it and you're centering the white experience in these stories, you would say, oh, well, that's, somebody might say that's petty. Another person no. might say that's unloving to the guy he corrected, right? So, or the, yeah. the person he marched up to and corrected. But actually, it really does matter who you center in the story. Because it what, does. what, you did, what yeah. he did there is he taught you to love yourself. That's exactly right. And more than anything, I would say my parents as characters mm -hmm. that were both coaches, mentors, my first pastors, my first teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Also, sometimes they were foils. Sometimes it was like, wait, who am I in relationship to you? Mm -hmm. But the container that they made for me and my siblings, which was not perfect mm -hmm. and frankly, sometimes fraught, is why I am who I am. I literally am in that Ubuntu way. Mm -hmm. I am who I am. Because they were who they were. Yeah. And that love of myself, I can do it. I can get there. I can try it. I might fail. Uh, I can stand up for justice. I can be gentle if I need to. Yeah. All of those gifts that are inside me are forged in my family mm -hmm. with and my mom and my dad and my siblings. And you are somebody. Like he I made you embody that Jesse Jackson That's right. speech from 1980. That's right. That's right. Wow. That's right. Wow. That's right. So tell me and about... And I love him. Oh. You know, he's such a good old guy. <laughs> yeah. So good guy. yeah. Yeah. Tell me about your experience. We're going to jump here, but, you know, it's still, it's still moving from your childhood experience of being in the Black Evangelical Church and having the don't, 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 don't is right. what faith is mostly about, is about what you don't do. And what was the impact of that, particularly as you look at, look, you are the first woman, Black woman pastor of the oldest congregation in America. And many evangelical churches won't even allow a Black woman to be a pastor, um, right. let alone, and in Black churches especially, I mean, just are yeah. not going to call a Black woman pastor. And then on top of that, you had the, the subjugation or at least the overlay of purity culture into yes. your development. So, so what was the impact of that on you and your development? And then what did it look like for you to break into fierce love there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really honest to say, and I want to be careful how I use this word because I really just mean stunted. Yeah. But there was something stunted mm -hmm. or slowed down yeah. about my development as a woman, my, my sensuality, mm -hmm. right? my femininity, mm -hmm. my sexuality. Like I was never unclear about my sexual orientation like some young people are. Mm -hmm. But I was also but I was frozen, Lisa. I was frozen. At, Let me say, I understand. Do you understand what oh I'm talking God, about? Do you understand? Totally, yes. I, I, I overstand. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, what was that like I mean, I remember kissing a boyfriend in high school. Mm -hmm. 
And just it was the most delicious kiss. Mm. Your toe curling kiss. You're like, oh, this is what people talk about? I get this. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. But I broke up with him Mm. around that feeling (gasps) that if I kiss him again and I want to have to make love with him and then I'm going to go to hell. Mm. And so I better break up with him. Can you imagine? Oh, oh, I can imagine. Right? So, <laughs> no, I know that so, that was exactly the, the thinking that was taught in youth groups around the world, around, around the, world. the country. And so, around the, so what? Why? So, I'm just saying for me, and and I write in the book a a bad touch story that complicates that more, where you just feel like if you are sexy, if you because you don't know your kids, you don't mm-hmm. know that it's not really your fault. So you think, what did I do, and how did I look, and what did all that kind of crap mm-hmm. that happens to women and girls and boys and men who are mistreated in the sex department. So I'm trying to say that might have been my biggest coming out is coming out to myself as good enough, coming out to myself as take off your mask, take off your cape, Mm. be yourself. I'm not going to suddenly turn into some crazy sleeping around by that wasn't what that, I was that's wired. not what it was about yeah that's not what it was about it was just owning your I don't want to embarrass anybody like owning your smells owning your vibrations girl your, do not even do worry about embarrassing about, anybody right? on this. And, yeah, and owning your odor owning your owning your menstruation owning your mood owning your fibroids owning your hysterectomy owning your womanness that's it owning owning your that flat breasts that grow Right, your it's flat powerful. breasts that go into big breasts. Like the way are we are disembodied in the church. Like you are a spirit and not a body, not a flesh. Kata sarks, right, Paul? Against the flesh or of the flesh, as right. opposed to uh, of the spirit. Who decided? Thank you, Greek people, mm-hmm. that we should have an either or about spirit and flesh. That actually messes with people's souls. Yes, it does. Wow. And okay. it messed with it messed with mine. How did it mess know? with your soul? I felt like I, in a prison that, mm-hmm. that the only way to do the God thing was to separate myself from even just what would have been normal teenage feelings mm-hmm. of kissing, petting, discovery. I, I mean, I want to say that I went on to be a pastor who was a youth pastor who, forgive me, God, but I told teenagers then the only safe sex is learning how to touch yourself and give yourself some pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it, and God is going to be okay with that. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that is what I evolved to. Mm-hmm. But in those days, I just felt so ashamed, Lisa, of anything yeah. that felt sensual. We were taught to be ashamed. I mean, okay, so of course I, we were. I 100%, I, just, I feel like, honestly, I have literally been on a healing path here <laughs> and you are ahead of me on this path. So part, I have to say, I'm asking you these questions because I feel like, my God, I'm learning here. But more than learning, I actually feel this is literally a healing moment for me. It is. Um, Oh, good. good. No, it really is. When you talk about, when you even talk about owning, one of the things that strikes me about your choice of words there is that when you are in the evangelical church, you don't feel like you own your body, your smells, your vibrations, your whatever, your pleasure. You don't own that. It's owned by, they say God, but actually it's really them because they're the ones who get to judge whether or not you're doing it right or not. Right. And you get censured if you're not. I mean, oh my gosh, I think back to, I think back to some experiences that I had in my own evangelical communities 
growing up and one in particular, not as a young person, but actually as a, as a 27 something, 20, 20 year, not 27, but 20 something year old and 30 something year old, that it was in that time that I think that's the time people are normally getting married, right? That's when people are normally that's having right. kids, but I was in right. ministry and I was mm-hmm. being taught explicitly, explicitly that you don't show your curbs. Um, mm-hmm. then, then young people, like our staff workers started showing their curves, like the millennials as they were coming up. I was like, that's just wrong. Like I had been indoctrinated <laughs> and now, I mean, my God, like the, I mean, at, I mean, up on the worship thing, they're like, whoops, hanging out. I'm like, what part of me is still, I still fight that. I'm like, whoa, but what that really is breaking free of white patriarchy. That's bottom line. That's right. That's what that that's really right. is. That's right. And, and the ways white us. patriarchy can sneak into our black culture. Yeah. You know, the, the get, like we think about, I mean, you've been to Africa and other sort of, I'm going to say countries where the folk are free. Hello. And yes. just the way people move and the way they dress and the way they dance and the way they hold their bodies and the way we got all Victorianed and whitened about what's acceptable and what's beautiful and what, what's right. It's simple. What's right. So here's what's right to me is you don't, we don't want our bodies to hurt other people's bodies. We don't want our sensuality to do power over somebody else's sensuality. We don't want to abuse anyone in an intimate way ever, never, ever. Yeah. And we want to love ourselves fiercely enough to say, I am, I am the temple of God. I am built in the image of God. I am fearfully and awesomely and wonderfully made, very good made, to quote your book. And to say I'm not fabulous is almost sacrilegious. Well, it is sacrilegious. To say I'm not disagreeing with God. Right. You here you are. This is you. And God, if God didn't want us to be sensual, we wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But that stuff feels good for a reason. And, yeah. and also it's human with the part of us that is human and animal c- community mm-hmm. higher evolved mm-hmm. is that we need the smell of each other, the touch of each other. We need the feromes and the dopamine and the joy of connecting and hugging and loving to make us feel good. So you rub your baby's back when they're, mm-hmm. when they got colic and you touch your partner's feet when they're tired and you just stroke their hair and they're like, oh my God, I feel loved. That touch is so important. And it, mm-hmm. it is climactic in a lovemaking moment and that we spend years acting like that's the nastiest thing in the world is pretty screwed up. It really is. I mean, when you think pretty about, when you think about the reality that before the blending of Puritanism and European evangelicalism, this really wasn't a thing. It wasn't something no. that most of the church, even in the world, and certainly not the first century church was concerned about. You really, you never hear Jesus talking about sex ever. In fact, the one time they bring somebody before him and say, look what she did. He's like, hello, who hears without yeah. sin? Come on. I don't care. And it was sin in, a, in, a, in that, of course, what they're talking about is adultery, right? So, of course, breaking the marriage vow. But I think that, I just think that right now we're in this moment of deconstruction and decolonization of yeah. our faith. And this is one of those pieces of it that never gets spoken to. So that's why I wanted to make sure we spoke to it, because I know that this has been I'm a so part of your story. Yeah, it's an important part of my journey. I, I think to myself, I mean, choices I would have made differently if it wasn't all wrapped up in sex, not sex. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah. And I think to myself how blessed I am now to be of this age, in this body, mm-hmm. loving myself 
mostly pretty fiercely that it's a gift that happened over time that I wrestled for, that I would not surrender mm-hmm. to just love myself and to not should on myself and to not shame on myself. And it's a gift I hope more girl children, more young children, more more boys, more girls, more queer folks can get sooner in their lives. Mm. Look at look at how you get your soul squashed around this. Mm. Like really? And it's the same thing, right? Because if we can squash the sexuality of a woman, because somehow she's unpure because she menstruates, then the next step to that is any man that's feminine or perceived not to be masculine enough. And the next step to that is anybody that's gender nonconforming. And the next step to that is men who don't have as much power. And we have trounced on all of those people over time in the name of Jesus. What was your healing process? Therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When a relationship failed and I felt that it was my fault and that somehow I was super wrong and needed to judge myself. I both wanted to punish. I tell this story in the book. I wanted to punish the person who hurt me and I was punishing myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I took more Tylenol than one should take for a headache. Oh, I wow. Wanted to, I wasn't sure I wanted to be here. And I say that and I stand back and I go, actually what you wanted to do was to beat him up by taking the Tylenol. Ah. And then as I was in the middle of taking the Tylenol, I thought, if I die right now, my mom is going to kick my behind. <laughs> my dad is going <laughs> to come and beat the crap out of me. That's so hilarious. Some man, they can kill myself. So. Mm-hmm. But that, at least I would say, with my psychology hat on, Mm -hmm. what I had really reached was the end of being fake. That's what I had reached the end of my false self. I had reached the end of the utility of pretending Mm -hmm. that I was okay when I wasn't. Right. And so that, I think that episode was not anymore. And so I found a therapist right then. A wonderful doctor, Dr. S, I'll say. Mm-hmm. And he helped me to recover my childhood, sent me home to my parents to get some loving from them wow. outside of the big daughter, old sister type dynamic. Right. And more like let them parent me. He knew that I wanted to be a pastor. And he said, you're not going to ever be able to do that well until you get your own loving on from your parents right. in a way that you need. And so we did that together. My mom and my dad and my therapist really worked on me, claiming me. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of the healing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an ongoing process. I'm not going to say I'm done. Sure. But I, am, I think my relationship with John yeah. is like Your a deep. Amazing husband. Yeah. I love him. Oh, my God. And wow. I wouldn't have been ready for him before. Wow. But I rehearsed being married. married and this What's marriage that was like? Wait right a minute. Way. How do you rehearse that? What do you mean? Like I got divorced. Oh, work. I see. Oh, you had this. Okay, yeah. so this is the actual yeah. thing. But this is the, was a rehearsal. This is the, this is the, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so that's hilarious. I'm saying this is really a partnership that mm-hmm. is forged, born of in my true self. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you two married? Forty-four. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So wow. this is what happened mm-hmm. to get to grow up. Mm-hmm. and have a grown-up love. That gives yeah. me hope. It really does. It gives me hope. It's there for you. You're beautiful, Lisa. Mm. Inside and out. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Jackie, do you think that there's hope for the church, the Black church, 
in its relationship to the body and cross-gender and all the things because so much of our experience as people of African descent in America has been the brutality against our bodies and even the forced brutality against each other, right? By white patriarchy. And it's sad that so much of that was internalized, especially in the Black evangelical church. But what do you think is the hope for us? You and me and Otis and Michael Way and, you know, Angel and Bishop Yvette and, you know, Tracy, Black leaders being honest and taking on the the truth of how much we can internalize that. You can be ashamed of, of that, and therefore you don't want to talk about that. But I think we have to keep holding up a banner. Holding up a mirror maybe is a better analogy to say, this is what we're doing, guys, and this is why. And how do, how do we want to, do we want to do that anymore? You have to examine. That, you know, I talk in the book about picking up our stories and looking at our stories. So if you say to yourself, how do you end up with, I won't say who, but there was a pastor of a big church in New Jersey when I was in seminary. He thought I was fabulous. But I'm going to hire you to be my intern, and you're never going to preach. Well, I didn't go to See? take that job. Wow. And it's right? because you're a woman? I, yeah. I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm not coming. Now, somebody else might have chosen that and be inside the place and try to fix it from inside. But we have to interrogate these whys. Why are we doing that? What's that about? Really show me that text. Why am and I saying yes that, to this? Yes, yeah, don't a big be putting question. that. Don't, it's a big question. Like, why would you say yes to that? To the piece, to t- leaving a piece of yourself on. Some women do and go for it. But some of us have to say no. And some of us have to say yes and this is wrong. And some of us have to say, all of us have to say, let's get to the 21st century with our hermeneutic. We, are we going to really act like the, like, what about the women in the New Testament kicking it with Paul and Jesus and stuff? What, in the Romans. I mean, in the book of Come Romans, on. the end of Romans, it Come ends on. with this list of women. I mean, the not women. the least of which is Junia, right? Who was the leader of an entire city of churches. Hello, named an apostle by Paul. Right. Hello, somebody. Right. So yeah, well, I mean, let's, it's not let's even just cut it out. Yeah, it's not yeah. even just get with the 21st century. It's get with the actual scripture people. Come on. No, that's right. Come that's on. right. And and ask ourselves, have the courageous conversations to ask ourselves, what's patriarchy got for the black church? Yeah. Because if you're doing something, you, what's the payoff? Yeah. And I I would submit. It is a vestige of white supremacy inside us. And I would submit in a world that doesn't value Black men, we often think we need to give our Black men that. But I think our Black men can have power and acknowledgement in a different kind of way. I think they can partner with women in different kinds of ways and partner with children in different kinds of ways. And we can be the revolution. We don't need no white folk hierarchy guiding our family systems. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So how does fierce love change the game regarding how we think about the church? Mm -hmm. We started that in this last segment. I want you to take us, go in on that. Take us deeper. Yeah. How to change the church. So let me have two moments of this theological indulgence to make this case. Okay. And one is that all the world's major religions talk about love neighbor as self in some kind of way. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. 
don't withhold from someone that which you need for yourself. One tradition says, don't break anyone's heart. Don't break anyone's heart. That's a really beautiful sentiment, right? So, so we who are Christian say, Jesus gave us this one command. What's the greatest command? And he literally takes two from De- Deuteronomy and Leviticus and puts love God with everything, love neighbor, love self. In other words, love period. But the two clauses, love neighbor and self, are uh, equal signs. They're connected by the Greek word os, and that is exactly equal. You must love your neighbor exactly as you love yourself is the command, which means you've got to love yourself. So the revolution I'm trying to preach is can we start teaching each other to love ourselves in the name of Jesus? Not hate yourself in the name of Jesus, shame on yourself in the name of Jesus, deride yourself. In the, what, can we undo the worm theology, Lisa, of like, we are so horrible. Oh my God, which oh. is so terrible that we need Jesus to save us by dying on the cross. Right. Or the maybe worm we theology. Just, Let's like, can we sit on that for a second? Worm, just like, I want to put a little exclamation point at the worm. As in, we are as low I'm as worm, worms. I'm a worm. Oh my God, I'm such we're a worm. We're as low oh as God. worms. Thank we're you, so Lisa. horrible. Yeah. I'm just so bad. Hate yourself. Hate yourself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, flagellate yourself and hate yourself. And the reason you got that is because that stuff comes with the control issues of empire. Y'all wormies need a suzerain and one of them is Caesar and one of them is Jesus. So here we go. Wow. So what if we undid that? What if we did instead from the beginning of their faith life, toddlers who begin to understand you are beloved, you are awesomely and wonderfully made in the image of God. You are fabulous. You are badass. You're amazing. You you are loved by God and loved by this community. And what kind of humans would we raise? Mm. This is a revolution for the church, not servants who hate themselves, but servants who love themselves, not catechized kids into how horrible we are but at one meant with God because you represent God in the world and you are an agent. Psalm 85, you know, we're made a little lower than God. Oh no, a little lower than angels. No, it says a little lower than Elohim. That's God. So um, let's be just a little bit lower than God to care for the earth. One. Wait, 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 before you don't move on, don't move on because I want to, okay. I want to say something here. Please. That's a dangerous thing for the church. Like that really yes, would is. be a game changer for the church. And here's why. Because when every person in the pews loves themselves and understands that they were made in the image of God, which means they were created to exercise dominion over themselves. They were created to exercise stewardship of the world, as in they were created to make decisions, not just the pastor. Well, you can tell somebody. I then my, my my turn my phone yeah right Lisa but, but that was Suddenly, it's a you dangerous thing because you lose control can the church leadership lose control of its members that's really the question and if it does not I would like to submit then it's just going to die. Yeah, You keep on preaching dead theology. You keep on preaching power over. You keep on preaching. You keep on making a church, white and black evangelicals, in which our young people think their friends can't come, that they are they find us to be hypocritical. But read, read unchurched, right? They are not trying to do this. And so the reason the whole, so much of the Black Lives Matter activism happened outside of the church is because of the judgment of the church, right? So do we want to live? Do you want to be made well? Maybe that's a better question. Maybe we should go Bible on it. Do you, do you want to be made well? If we want to be made well, church, we got to get in some new water. Okay, so how does fierce love change our politics? 
I think in a similar way, but maybe this other thread of Ubuntu. So thanks for teeing that up for me so well. Mm. If the one thread is love neighbor, love self, the other thread is theologically is Ubuntu. Ubuntu, Ubuntu, Ubuntu. Mm. A human is a human through other humans. That's the Zulu expression. Oh, wow. And since we're all, isn't that pretty? A human is a human through other humans. Through other if humans. We, through other humans. Not by yourself. Yeah. You can't be a human. A human is a, a human through other humans. Wow. Not even like a singular word for human, right? Umuntu, Ubuntu, Ngabantu. So since we're all from Africa, hello, everybody, then... I think this is wired into our DNA. We walk down to the caves, into the light. Who's gonna, who's gonna, who's gonna pick the corn? Who's gonna discover fire? I'm making up stuff. Who's gonna raise the babies? We need a village to to survive. And this is so built into African culture. And this is, I think, still lives in the womanists, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, all the writings about, I think it'll piss God off if he walks by the color purple and we don't notice it. Sugar, you know, baby sugs, holy, love your flesh. This idea that we are a human community that can survive and thrive in the wilderness with each other and not alone. So what I think I would like to have happen, Lisa, is that when your mom needs social service nets, I think to myself, that's my auntie, and I want to vote for her. When a child in Detroit still doesn't have clean drinking water, I want policies and infrastructure to be on my mind for that baby. When a child is hungry in Appalachia, I want us to be thinking about food prices, like the whole village right. that is Black and white and Asian and Hispanic all and Indian. Us. All of us yeah. voting for, standing up for, all legislating of us. for all of us. That's how fierce love does politics. I can't go to the polls not thinking about the poorest in my community. That's, that's what fierce love would do. What would fierce love do to our families? How would it change our families? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think, oh my God, I think this starts from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Like most of our families are structured for patriarchy, no matter what we say. Mm-hmm. But I think if fierce love centered the most vulnerable in our family, that might be the oldest person in our family, mm-hmm. right? It might be the queer one in our family. It might be the alcoholic in our family. Mm-hmm. It, it might, might be, be the mentally children. ill person in our family. It might be the mentally ill person in our family. Mm-hmm. It might be the, even just the sort of differently abled person in our family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We fiercely loved that person and organized our family to support the most vulnerable that we'd be doing Jesus is the least of us. Oh, that's good. And, and, and the family so members, your neighbor, you too, right? right. That's it's, your neighbor too. It's not just how you feel about your family. It's the actions you take to love them, to organize right. for them, towards them, them. on right. their behalf and, and with them. Wow. That's right. That's right. I think that's right. And I think it's like, in a way, that is an intervention. I mean, I'm thinking about my own family now where, my dad, our patriarch, we lost our mom four years ago. But our dad, I mean, I can't, I'm so proud of my sisters. My sister and my brothers have a, my sister lives in Kankakee, like outside of Chicago. But she makes a sojourn every Thursday, she and her husband, to hang out with dad. To do what he loves to do, which is to play some cards at the table and talk stuff. So she organizes her life, her work life 
around that ritual with him. And that's everything. It's everything. I don't live there, but I organize my budget to take care of my dad. So whoever is the one that's the most vulnerable, if we revolutionary, fiercely loved that person the way they need to be loved in their love language, we'd be reordering our families as well. Wow. So, okay. So how would fierce love impact relationships between different ethnic groups? So my husband is a white uh, United Methodist minister and I'm a black Presbyterian minister. So we're in a mixed relationship all the time, we say. And working on race all the time because we just, this is what we do. This is the work we share. This is how we met. So who's washing the dishes tonight or who's cooking might have some racial implications. I'm not sure. You know, this is working out. But there's something about the personal relationship I have with John and our son, Joel, who's married to a Jamaican-American woman. We're in this multi-ethnic family. And the, the, so, so there's humor. I'm going to say fierce love can bring some humor to race dynamics. That's good. Gabby and I might say, are we going to season the chicken the white way or the black way today? You know, it was just kind of code for, you know, or, you know, you could also do the Southern fried way. Or we could do that way. way. Right? Exactly. Right. So like just to play in that space okay. together and to learn each other's uh, cultural markers and take up. So I think fierce love really does take a walk in the other's ethnic shoes. When I'm on the nice white people tour teaching about, anti-racism. I say, if you really want a revolution, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I'm a little slow on the uptake. Did you say the nice, the nice white people tour? I'm on a nice white people tour. <laughs> oh my God. I know exactly what we're talking about. So all the nice you know, white people who are listening right now, and I know that there are a lot of you just know that, you know, we, we tour, we tour your communities. It's so, okay. Right. We're on, we're on the circuit, the night's white people. We're on the circuit. That's And right. that's okay. That's right. But I'd say there's a very particular way that you talk to night's white people. And it's that's different right. than you, you talk to that's right. other people. So keep going. That's right. <laughs> if I'm going to Kripalu to do some yoga stuff, I'm not got a whole thing. A whole other thing. So yeah. I, I'm happy to be on that tour to help mm-hmm. build a world that is anti-racist yeah. and but I'm also saying, I think about W.E.B. Du Bois and the idea of double consciousness. Yes. And how we have two, you know, we got the us gays and the white gays. I wish all peoples would be at least double conscious. If white people are double conscious about black folk, if they would see the world through our lens or through an indigenous lens or through an Asian lens, I think we make a better world. So there's something about stepping into new music, new magazines, new books, new consuming literature, consuming radio that would teach you, go to museums and learn, get a cookbook and try, go to a Black church and dive in. So so I'm saying don't make the burden of multi-ethnic life a Black folk burden. It's an everybody burden. Don't make it, Gloria and Zodua, a bridge only across my back. Let's build a bridge together. I think is a really important fierce love thing. And my community at Middle Church, Lisa, is the baddest-assed multi-ethnic community of revolutionary lovers trying so hard, striving to understand each other's point of view, to, to build new cultural milieus, to build new cultural languages. This is what needs to happen if we're going to build a multi-ethnic future free of racism. I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the things that is 
striking to me is that you do have a multi-ethnic church and I have seen your church in action. It is, it is prophetic. And the reality, but the reality is that most multi-ethnic churches that are out there right now are led by white men. And so what is the difference between the way that you lead and the way that they're leading in that when you look at their churches, they will call it a multi-ethnic church, but usually they don't have any more than 17% of their congregation right. is actually people of color. And yet they call it a multi-ethnic congregation, you know, when yeah. 83% of the people who are in the pews are white. So what's, yes. what's happening? What are you doing that, that they can learn from? Well, you know, I, I'm black. They can't <laughs> learn. They can't, <laughs> well, I can't be black. <laughs> they can't be black. But I think, you know, being black in America has taught you and I both something about code switching, about... You know, holding more than one thing, being both and. And I, I, the, the PhD I did on, uh, you know, leadership in multi-ethnic churches is what I studied. I, I did find white leaders who had this capacity to both and. You got to let, let go of your power, white people. If you want to build this other kind of system, you got to cast your leadership. You got to get some Black leaders in the room, some Asian and indigenous and Latinx leaders in the room. You got to put people on your board that are different than you. And if you don't, you're just a white church with some brown people. If you really want to be a multi ethnic table, you've got to let go of some seats at the table and put some other folks there. I know that some of the pastors that I've talked to over the years have said, Yeah, but what about the white people who aren't really ready? Right? I can't preach to the people who are in the, on the extremes, I can, I need to preach to the middle. Right. But that I, I have said back to them, I'm like, wait a minute. So the people on the, you're calling the black folk on the extremes just because they have a different need than your white congregants. Their, their souls need to be ministered to as well. And if they're coming to your church, God has placed them in your care. You are their shepherd. So if you're only preaching to the middle, then that means that you are not feeding the sheep, the right. black sheep, that actually have, they have, they need you to go further. They need you to push yeah. further. So how do you deal with that as a pastor? I mean, I think I, I deal with it first as a person who, again, has had to learn to be in multiple spaces and navigate many identities. And in some ways, Du Bois said that's a gift, and it is, right? It is a gift. So I don't have a lot of patience for, I'm not kidding, white, so I'm going to say, with I am of a nice white people tour. So you can go to middlechurch.org and find resources there, including anti-racism classes, come to church, see what we do, how to do worship. We've done conferences for 15 years to teach people how to get in the multiple space and be anti-racist. But you're going to lose people if you decide to do this gospel calling. I mean, let's start with, is it right? Is it right to build the reign of God on earth? Heck yeah, yes. Is it right to have multiple orientations, d- different diversities all in one space? Are we going to go to a segregated heaven? No. So, so since it's right and you make a commitment to do it, you faithfully move forward with Holy Spirit to build curriculum, to buy books, to consume different kinds of theologies, to listen to different kinds of music. And somebody's going to leave, but somebody's going to find you because they know it's right as well. If we're terrified, that if our biggest ambition is nobody ever leaves, I think we're not doing gospel work. That's so good. I mean, what I hear you saying, I'm just going to, I'm going to put it in my own terms here. If you are catering to the middle, you're catering to that part, or even really to the, I'm not really talking politics, but you get it. 
to the ones on the right, right, right. If, you're, if you're catering to them and saying, well, we need to bring them along, then who is God? Who is reigning? And yep. whose kingdom is reigning in that church? No, it is not. It is not God. It is theirs. They are the ones who are reigning in your church. And guess what? That means that you are following them, not God. Amen. So that's exactly right. Wow. And the question is, do you want to lead? You know, I love that. Kirk Franklin, do you want a revolution? Oh, yeah. Do, do you want to do you want to lead? Do you want to, my friends who are listening, be faithful to Jesus's vision, to God's vision of, of shalom, of peace, of well-being, of wholeness? Do you think the brown, Afro-Semitic, at once homeless, at once refugee, Nazarene from Palestine, stop acting like it wasn't Palestine, then it was. Jewish from Palestine, Nazarene, poor carpenter boy. Do you think he is approving of the empire to thing we're pretending is Christianity? Or do you think maybe Jesus will be calling us to be, as Virgilio Elizondo would say, a, a mestizaje people, because Jesus himself is mestizaje, mixed. Can we be the body of Christ? In other words, if we're all white, I'm saying nope. Nope. How can people continue on the journey toward fierce love? Well, <laughs> you can follow me at Rev Jackie Lewis <laughs> on all the things. Okay. You can buy the book, Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and Rule-Breaking Kindness that Can Heal the World Anywhere You Buy Books. Um, we've got some amazing study guides we've done, Lisa, too, and some like journaling prompts and some book club collateral, even a calendar. And if you buy, we, we got that for you. We can make sure that happens. And I think interrogate your own life against fierce love as a backdrop. How, what, how can you love you better? How can you own you and love you better so you can love your people better, so you can love the world better? The book will help you do that. And you can start even before you get to that book buying button. Just, I'm going to love me better first. But definitely press the button. (laughs) Definitely press the button. (laughs) Definitely press that book button. Press the button. That's right. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you, Lisa, for this amazing conversation. Appreciate you. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.